0: Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today's guest will be Allison Tant, a Florida State Representative from District 9.
1: Um, so can you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Allison Tant, State Representative for House District 9, which is Tallahassee. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your reelection election campaign? Um,
0: I read in the Tallahassee Democrat that your only opponent, Ashley Guy, appears to be ineligible to run as a Republican. Does this change anything for you, and how has your
1: focus changed or remained the same? Um, I'm running like I've got the The devil on my heels. I never stop. I'm very aggressive when it comes to this. I am running for my house seat to serve. I'm not running for myself. I'm running for the people. So, by the way, I'm located in Tallahassee, but the district now goes into 90% of Jefferson County and 100% of Madison County. So it grew geographically. Redistricting happened. We have to do a census count every 10 years. Um, This. Cycle, uh, all of our after the census count in Florida in 2020, we grew uh, our every house member had to add more people to their districts because we have to have equal representation under, under the law. So we all grew from around roughly 150-ish thousand voters to 180,000 voters. So uh, my district, uh, my new district contains 183,000 voters. And uh, so I grew both in North Florida, we had to grow geographically as well as by people in order to get this hit the numbers we had to reach. So that's the reach of my district. And um, I look forward to working hard to, now that I don't, Assuming I don't have to run for re-election, um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, my goal is to be as strong an advocate as possible for the people who live in my district. So that is going to take me working closely with everyone in Jefferson, Madison, and Leon counties to make sure I'm on top of all the issues and can be ready to act on their behalf. So in respect to the my opponent, um, Florida law says that um, you must be registered in the same party for which you are qualifying for 365 days. Uh, there was a provision passed in the 2000 la- legislative session, which and pre- it did not previously apply to folks who were NPAs. So NPAs did not have to meet that 365-day provision. After the ghost candidates that were the fake candidates in the 2020 cycle, the legislature um, passed a provision, which said that you could no longer be an NPA one day, and then in a party the next, you had to be follow that same provision as everybody else. So NPAs who wanted to switch to be a candidate needed to switch 365 days prior to the first day of qualifying. So my opponent has been a registered Republican for 69 days prior to the um, qualify the start of qualifying. So she was she is ineligible, and so uh, <clears throat> she's now no longer listed on the website. And tomorrow is the last day um, for the Secretary of State to certify or serve notice that there is going to be an appointment process to fill a, to, to 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 appoint someone to take the position um, of the previous opponent. But in my view, and in my lawyer's views. Um, you would have to have been a qualified candidate that, that was knocked off in order to fill a vacancy or the qualified candidate um, who left um, the dis- or who decided not to run or who withdrew or decided not to run again. And that is not the case for this opponent. So we do not believe they have appointment authority. So we're hoping that tomorrow's certification process is going to be um, accurately done. So that's what we're waiting for for tomorrow.
0: Okay. Um, and can you talk about your agenda in
1: the next legislative session if you are re elected? My, my legislative agenda for next session is going to be around. Um, I've already been asked to file some bills by different folks. Um, I have, in my first term in office, I have passed five bills. Um, my first year, I passed a bill which goes to appropriate public education for. Uh, Older high school, older students with disabilities, getting them into the workforce development training track um, earlier, getting them into what's called the transition area teaching, which is teaching life, social, job skills, um, et cetera, and getting them job training um, starting at age 12 where they develop a plan for it. and And then leading into the onset of that education at age 14 instead of 16, and then making sure that they understand the path for um, being able to pursue a four-year transition training per, uh, phase of their lives. And then also after that, after high school is over for, for people with disabilities at age 22, that they understand what's available to them through the Florida Center for Students with Unique Ability. So I put that all in statute that was House Bill 173 that I passed in, in uh, the 2020 cycle. 2020 legislative year. And then this last year, I passed a bill which will call will help children not meeting developmental benchmarks, um, be able to continue to receive and continue to receive more assistance um, in school up into age nine, up until my bill passed that cut off at age five. So this is going to have a very big impact on a lot of kids in Florida, so that uh, was um, that. Those kinds of things are going to continue to be my focus. I've also going to be carrying a bill to try to uh, include art therapists in the psychotherapy bill in the psychotherapy practice uh, recognition area, and um, that's something I'm doing for them. I I told someone I would carry a bill to try to get lead out of. Um, let out of school school buildings that are old school buildings in Flora, uh, the direct file bill, which will keep juveniles, well, will, which I hope to lead to juveniles being able to uh, have a court review by a judge, a judicial review, and before being just automatically put in prison and have them instead be diverted to a juvenile justice system. If the court finds that that's the more appropriate venue right now, it's automatic. They go to jail go to prison with adults. So that I think is highly inappropriate. So that's going to be one of the bills that I sponsor. My goal is to I also spot I really work hard on behalf of small and independent businesses. Um, And so um, I'm always uh, leaning in on those issues. I've been on the health and human services committee. So making sure our hospitals are appropriately uh, reimbursed for the services that they provide to Medicaid recipients and Medicare recipients is gonna be a big deal to me. Going continuing, especially as you know, our hospitals are in a recovery mode post COVID. And um, uh, really just the focus on, on people, on vulnerable people, whether they're senior citizens, whether they're people with disabilities, whether it's new moms, whether it's dependency issues, foster child issues, um, abuse, um, all of that. So all of those issues are gonna be things I continue to focus on as I have my first term.
0: And how has your childhood and the way you grew up influenced your policies and goals that you aim to accomplish?
1: Well, my whole childhood, my, my family experience, my life experience directs everything that I do. My mother was one of eight children born into poverty at the height of the depression. Her father was always out and away from the family looking for work. My grandmother uh, had one dress that she wore um, that she owned and that she had to take off to wash and wait for it to dry to put back on. My mother and her seven siblings picked berries and tobacco in the fields of North Carolina to help put food on the family table, they would do this Early early morning hours, they would work through, work before school. They would go to school. They would work in the afternoons. They would work on the weekends, and it's how they how they survived. My mother grew up very hungry. I saw the aftermaths, the long lasting aftermaths of a woman who uh, lived with food insecurity in her young years, and it was a it was very hard. Um, <laughs> She didn't hoard food, but she was always looking. She would, she would filter a piece of food off p- other people's plates in our own family because that's how they survived. So um, <clears throat> my father grew up in an orphanage. In today's world, he would have been a foster child. Um, he was surrendered to the orphanage by his mother who um, put he and one of his older sisters in an orphanage um, and kept his, the other sister at home because she had a brain damage from birth. From a birth incident in 1920. And so she had no way her, The fa- that his father had abandoned the family. So she had no way to feed her children. And she wanted something better for my father and, and his older sister. And so she put him in an orphanage and he stayed in the orphanage from the time he was eight until eight, age 18. So I'm very attuned to all of that. My mother impressed upon me how critical it was to get a, get the education and how and I saw her climb out of poverty because of her ability to get a good public education and same with my dad the orphanage you know he was in school while he was in the orphanage and um he uh he learned a trade he learned how to work with his hands he served in the military he served in the merchant marines they both went to work for the railroad and they worked there their whole lives these are people who worked really hard. We had a garden in our front yard to help supplement the grocery bills. My dad fished and crabbed in the the intercoastal to help supplement our grocery bills. Uh, They worked hard to give us a better life. And I think most parents want to do that for their children. And um, so I think it's my job as an elected official to to help make sure those opportunities for other people exist like a good public education system, like protection of foster care children, like making sure that we can get kids their edu- and, fam- and support our children and our families um, when there are issues with homelessness and poverty, and et cetera. So those are the kinds of things that drive me. So they, that is really everything.
0: Um, and as a working mom with a child with Williams syndrome, can you talk more about how you advocate for disabled children and adults? Um, and can you also elaborate about the KEYS program that you do?
1: Sure. So my son, Jeremy, is now 23. So he, uh, when he was three years old, well, when he was 23 months old, he had open heart surgery. The heart condition that comes along with Williams syndrome is a fairly dramatic one, and he had to have a, rep- a repair He was on the heart-lung machine. And so I actually stepped back from the workforce for a while because I knew intrinsically I was gonna have to become a very strong advocate for him in schools. And in fact, I did. And so um, my experience with getting him services in in school uh, made me a very strong advocate for people like him and so I put together a group of moms um, and they were all moms of people with of kids with disabilities and also some teachers and also some uh, you know, community leaders. And we began fundraising and we created KEYS, which stands for Keys to Exceptional Youth Success. And we have a fundraiser once a year where we raise funds and we award a scholarship for a student from age uh, post-secondary. So anybody who has finished high school, we then put them on a path to independence and adulthood and a fulfilling adulthood by awarding scholarships for continuing education. And the reason we did that um, is because we At the same time we were doing that, we were improving, we were hard at work trying to improve the way public schools dealt with kids with disabilities, and particularly those in our area, because we'd all had pretty rough experiences. So we were working with them to advocate for change. And then as keys went on, we often had more money than we had students. Uh, to place, we had more me, because there weren't enough opportunities for students with disabilities to go on to higher ed. So we then set about creating some more opportunities. So we created the Tallahassee Eagle Connections program at Tallahassee Community College, which is a college based learning program with a modified curriculum for students with disabilities who want to go to college. And um, I then took that program and I made a Senate president who had a son with Down syndrome aware of it. He learned about it, he looked into it, he had the, he made it the subject of an OPAGA study. And from that, outgrew what's called now the Florida Center for Students with Unique Abilities, which is which is based in Orlando and helps create programs around the state, whether it's a job certificate program or a collegiate program or even an independent living skills program throughout the state. So there's, so Tallahassee Community College became one of the Center for Student with with Unique Abilities um, consortium members. And I've recently gotten that lively uh, college here in Tallahassee, which is a VOTech school. Um, I've gotten them uh, to create the SOAR program, which is a job certificate program for six distinct professions. Which will result in the in the cohort or the student leaving school with a certificate that's recognized by an employer. So um, those things have been done, and and we and then I also worked on creating the through Keys um, Summer Institute, which is a six week five six week course. Uh, Um, the adult and community ed program here in Tallahassee, um, out at Leon County Schools, out at the Lively Campus, um, or adjacent to the Lively Campus, um, where we we teach life, social independence, and soft job skills for a five week program, four days a week, it's pretty intensive. It's actually ongoing now. Actually, they told me to come visit, I'm gonna have to remember to do that. Um, And um, it is considered one of the best in the state we have fifty-three students, or no, fifty-eight students in the program now, and they cook lunch in groups. They, for the rest of the rest of the class, they uh, go out on social outings and they where they practice with non-disabled peer mentors what they've learned in real time in the classroom. Um, and so, it's really it's a really great program. So, those are three programs that have happened um, through keys, and then as you uh, know. Um, from that, I learned about the, the next thing we had to start looking at is, li- is where are these folks going to live? So my son is in this generation of people with the kind of with the cognitive disabilities that they have who are routinely for the first time, routinely outliving their loved one, their caregivers. So. I started working on Independence Landing, which is an, an independent living community. It's going to be an apartment complex located in Southwood. And um, we, are, we have broken ground on the construction and are leading the way into that. Um, now we are going to be we are doing assessments of potential residents as we speak. And sorry, my thing's buzzing. Um, and then um, we hope to be built in about 14 months and then occupied because we've got to pay the rent. So those are the things that we are working on right now through that, but I will tell you that um, the only, right now when, when the last parent dies, the only reliable place our loved ones have to go is a nursing home in the absence of another family member who can take on the responsibility of caring for them. A nursing home is far more expensive and it is, it is a societal issue we have to address. So independence landing is being built with affordable housing dollars, which is why there's not a huge move in fee. Um, like there is at like retirement or assisted living communities or whatever. And um, you do have to have uh, services wrapped around to make sure that the loved ones come up there independently. But this is not a place, it's a new housing model. Um, It's not a place for people who have medically, who are medically fragile and need constant medical care or or for full-time supervision. So flight risks and stuff like that. That's not the right place for, but this is a start on a new way to do things. So we're gonna get this right and then talk about what next steps there are. So that's the plan with independence landing. And all of this has been informed by my son, just riding shotgun to his life and seeing what's missing. And so, and what needs to be done for people like him. So that's what's driven me to pass the legislation that I've done and to do the things in the community that I've done because it's been my way of dealing with my anxiety about his future and anxiety that people like him and their future. And in 2022,
0: you passed House Bill 15 and House Bill 117, both helping improve the lives of disabled people. Can you talk more about those bills and their importance and how will you continue
1: to expand on those rights? Well, House Bill 15 is pretty landmark legislation. That's the one I told you about. So federal law allows for schools to provide educational supports to students who are not meeting developmental developmental benchmarks up until age nine. Florida cuts that off at age five. My bill brings us up to age nine or second grade, whichever comes first. And the reason I pursued that bill is because a child who is assessed and in need of services at age three, four, five stops at that point. They have a gap in services, they begin to uh, regress, and then they have to be retested all over again by a multidisciplinary team of people, including speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, behavioral therapists, uh, program uh, managers, uh, and teachers. Reading specialists, etc. And by the time you finish that, months have gone by. By the time you finish that, you're talking about spending six to seven thousand in those assessments per child when they maybe just had it done and then had the misfortune of turning, finishing their last day being five years old, and then they have to start this all over again. It results in a huge fiscal impact to the state because the tests have to be redone or uh, the student has to then uh, repeat a grade, which costs a fortune. Um, we're talking, I think the FEFP is seven, eight thousand a month. So then you're doing you're spending another whole year doing what they already could have been done and been done with if They hadn't lost these supports. And then finally, um, you have to and then for those who uh then I have had to repeat a grade or maybe have to be retested and lose months of learning. Then there's the cost of remediation to bring them up to speed. So it's a huge fiscal impact, and this is going to really have a hopefully a very positive impact on the students of this state. Um, 117 was my bill related to um, related to um, the FAST program, which is the assistive technologies. Um, Bill. So the assistive technologies bill um, basically streamlined the assistive technologies council allows them to take public or make take donations from people from the public and also by streamlining their council from 27 to 15, they can and not and removing the requirement of having a co-chair. They can have, have quorums, they can get things done and then get this assistive technologies into the lives of people with disabilities faster. So that was the purpose of that bill. And then um, another bill that I passed last the first time t- term, for my first year, my first term was a bill that requires the agency for persons with disabilities to provide every family whether they're eligible for, for the med waiver or not, a listing of resources that are out there for them that they should pursue. Things like applying for vocational rehabilitation, things like looking into whether or not they, have, they fit for SSI, looking into what if their kids are young, if the people are young or looking at that the ESC programs at school levels, looking into the students with for services for students with disabilities, exploring whether or not they need a guardianship and what that would look like. All of those things, because a lot of our families have no idea what they need to do. So I wanted, that's pretty much a handbook for how to proceed and how to, how to where, where to start. If you want you to have loved ones with disabilities. So that was a bill I passed my first term. And, the, and finally, the other bill I passed my first, term, which is a fund one, is <coughs> a new license plate um, to fund state parks. And so a specialty license plate um, that when, uh, that will generate uh, hopefully a um, billion dollars over a period of years, which will help go to repair state parks, uh, rebuild habitats, uh, replant seagrasses and other, other um, foliage that's necessary for, for habitats to survive, uh, repair boardwalks, make things ADA compliant. Etc. So that uh, that bill passed in my first term is my first year as well. So that gives you a rundown of my bills. So, um, and now I'm
0: going to steer towards how your policies can improve the lives of women. So can you give some examples of some policies that you have that can help these women?
1: Yeah. One well, one of the things that we focused on uh, my freshman year was um, <clears throat> the creation is expand extending Medicaid coverage to women who were who pregnant women right now under Florida law if you meet the income requirements. You can become a Medicaid patient when you become pregnant. Um, what this bill did was keep the woman and the baby on Medicaid for a year after the birth of the baby, hopefully then increasing and improving infant mortality outcomes and, and the health of the woman, the health of the mother and the support of the family. So that's one of the bills that we passed my freshman year in the legislature. So that's one example.
0: Um, and have you ever felt like you were treated differently as a female politician, especially in the South? Um, how are you going to try to change that? And how do your policies reflect that?
1: I will tell you that when I was running for party chair, when I did that in a previous iteration of life, um, I did get hit with, from men, with, I don't like the way your hair looks in that picture. I was also hit with, this picture doesn't have you smiling. You need to be smiling. And I also got hit with, I don't like your dress. It's too plain. You should be in a jewel tone. You should be, and I'm like, women didn't say that uh it was men so that happened but as a legislator um i don't know i mean i just work hard and i've been around the process for a lot on and off for a lot of years and so consequently i respect every aspect of the process and i work every aspect of the process i think communication is important and so i work with my colleagues i Talk with them about bills. I explain my bills to them. I walk through the nuances of them. Um, and if I have questions about things that are coming up, I ask those questions. So I don't know that I feel different, like if I'm seen differently or treated differently because I'm a legislator. Um, I do think maybe um, because I'm petite, I think there there may be some underestimation, but I I don't, that might be it. I don't know. So I just work hard. People know that I'm going to work hard and that when I have a bill up, I come prepared. When I come to committee, I'm prepared. So, but that's the other thing about women. We have to work twice as hard, be twice as prepared. We have to look professional. We have to, um, when women run for office, it typically takes seven asks of a woman where it doesn't do that for men so and men are expe- and women are expected to uh have it together personally and professionally and visibly uh, more so than than men have to have it so i think that's 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 proven that's been proven through studies
0: and according to Nina Jankowicz, a fellow at the Wilson Center known for her research on online information, women face a disproportionate amount of attacks online. These range from physical insults to threats of violence. As a female politician, have you ever been cyberbullied or harassed? Or, and if you have been, are you going to take action as a house member to try to change this trend?
1: Well, I can tell you I have been bullied. I have not been bullied since I was a legislator as much as I was when I was a party chair uh, when I was party chair, I was bullied on a regular basis by men, women, everybody. And it was ugly and it was personal. I had somebody suggest I commit suicide. Um, you know, um, just people would say things in a, perf- in on, on a screen to somebody that they would never say to their face. Um, they uh, politicians and people in this public sphere, department heads, everybody are treated uh, very, um, it's, it's easy to blame them. It's easy to take it out on them when their decision is made that somebody doesn't like. Um, uh, people don't ask, they accuse. And so they don't ask why particular, but I'll give you an example. During one of the special sessions on COVID, there was a bill that would have um, exempted from the public records people's medical records who sought a COVID va- who sought an exemption from a COVID vaccination or from wearing a mask, and the Democratic members of the legislature could have stopped that from passage because when you want to close a public record or make an exemption from a public record, it takes two thirds of the legislature, and I would I would not. I would not vote with my colleagues on that and they were upset with me and I and as, as it turns out medical records that are part of an of a of a complaint um, so if an employ, if someone sued an employer or if some of an employer um, released names of people who refused to get a vaccine or, or and I'm a vaccine proponent I'm a mask proponent I was all of that. But um, then, then those people would have had their public public records in those circumstances are not, are, are discoverable. And then part of the public record. And my concern was the people who I know who did not get a vaccine because their child had a very big medical problem or a mental health issue or um, drug and drug, you know, inter, interactions, the people who sought mask man mask um, exceptions, who sought um, exemptions, because it was often either mental health or, a, or another like disabling condition. I, I just couldn't do that. My son's medical record is about eight, eight inches tall. And I really didn't want all that out there. And I mean, I, I believe in taking hard stances on things, but Keeping people's medical records in the public sphere was not one I was willing to take a gamble on. And so um, I got bullied on that. I had several people uh, send nasty messages about that um, on social media because they thought I somehow did not um, stick up for the Democratic caucus on something. And it wasn't the Democratic caucus I was sticking up for. It was for families with people like my son um, and people who have mental health issues that they just don't want the rest of the world knowing about. It was for people, um, who were, um, whose who's son or daughter or mother or father might die if they, you know, had, uh, um, had to uh, have one drug over another, that kind of thing. So for me, it was, it was not as a clear black and white, but I, but I do know, I do have other friends in the legislature who are, always getting trashed on social media for one thing or another. Could be because they're gay, could be because they're Persian, could be because they're black. Um, And so there's a lot of that. But we did have a constituent that we tried very hard to serve. And this was another bullying incident. And he um, wanted us to interfere in a legal process. He was unhappy with a neighbor who had, I think, either complained about him or called the police on him, and he wanted us to stop a legal investigation or a police investigation into all of it, and I refused to do it. I don't think that's appropriate for a state legislature to get involved in, because it's elite, it is a complete criminal justice matter, and um, and we made some calls to find out if there was any validity to it, and they said that the state attorney and others had said we tried really hard to work with this gentleman, and he kept harassing my aide and kept making began making his threats, kept es, started to escalate. So we finally had to call the sergeant's office and say we need to make you aware that this particular constituent is of concern to us. We wanted to make you aware that if he tries to come in the building, we might need to monitor him or what have you. So uh, just so that so that does happen.
0: Yes. And on your campaign website, you state that you hope to achieve an equitable Florida. However, there have been many recent setbacks that may prevent the school from progressing, such as the signing of
1: the Don't Say Gay bill.
0: How do you hope to combat this?
1: Well, I voted against that bill. Um, I vote, I mean, my vote is my way to try to combat it. I mean, right now, uh, we need more numbers in the legislature to balance things out, um, who will be, reasonable on that. And the don't say gay bill is really n- misnamed. Um, it really does not. It's really like for one, then there's the parental notification of parental rights. That's, mis- that is also mislabeled. Basically that bill talks about how we teach children K- kindergarten through third grade um, about um, gender identities or whatever there isn't there is no sex ed at that age there's no gender talk about that at that age there's nobody he's going to try to say to somebody you really shouldn't be a boy you should be a girl or anything like that but what it does do um in that age group so sex ed is not taught in florida schools till the earliest at fifth grade and even then you have to sign a permission slip for it Now, my child with developmental disabilities did not get sex education until much later because he wasn't ready to learn it. So the developmentally appropriate stuff is already being done by our schools. What children are taught at the kindergarten, first, second, and third grade levels is about stranger danger and about don't let somebody touch you where your bathing suit covers. So now it's a question now as to whether that can be taught under this bill. And I think that's really dangerous for our children because we have, I mean, so then parents better get busy um, teaching that. So the other thing is I'll tell you on the don't say gay thing, um, what children at that age are doing every, every year. Cause I just, now my kids are a little older now, but we did it over and over and over again. It's the family tree. You may, you might remember this from your elementary school and preschool days you bring in, a poster board with a picture of your mom and your dad and your sisters and your brother and your grandmother and grandfather, whatever you do, your family tree. Well, when Johnny has two dads or two moms, there will be questions about that. And the question is, what is the teacher able to say? What, what will the teacher be able to explain if anything, and under this bill, the teacher will not. And so I guess they're assuming that these kids are not going to talk to each other on the playground or they're not going to talk to an older, older student at the school. That They're just going to go straight home to mom and dad. And that's what that means. And of course, we all know that students don't do that. Children talk to each other and all that. But I'll tell you, I was a big sister in the big brother, big sister program for three years before I had my kids. My little sister was seven years old when she asked me the following question. We were driving to home from one of our weekly events. she just can I ask you what gay means. And so I explained to her that gay has several meanings. One is that you're very happy. And the other is, and I said, and I think this is when you're getting to, it's when a man and a man or a woman and a woman love each other the way a man and woman love each other, like you see in your cartoons and on the Disney shows you watch with the princesses. And I said, literally, it is love. And she had a grandma and a granny who lived together. And that's why she was asking the question. And that was my answer. And frankly, I really think that's all anybody needs to know. And I said, do you have any further questions about that? And she said, no. So that's the don'ts that. So, so I think this whole don't, but the thing that's the most egregious of the don't say gay bill is not even all of that. It is that if a parent is unhappy and decides to sue the school, And they win they get attorney's fees if they sue the school and lose they get attorney's fees so there's nothing to protect our schools or our teachers from a frivolous lawsuit or an you know an unreasonable issue so i'm i'm very concerned about that whole process so but i think that bill is going to be litigated and it's probably not over yet so Um, And
0: lastly, what do you hope to see in Florida's policies in the future? Overall, what do you think we as a state need
1: to focus on in order to improve equality and diversity? Well, I think that um, what we we've done some some really good things on the environment. I think Um, we are working hard on that. But I think in the future, we really have to focus on affordable housing. Um, And then um, I think that that is the single biggest challenge we are facing as a state right now. And then in terms of of equality, um, we're just going to have to fight those issues one at a time.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for the next episode.